You're listening to the Good Samaritan Anglican Church Podcast. The following sermon was recorded on Sunday, August 12th, 2018. A reading from Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. The poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life? and loves many days that he may see good. Keep your tongue from evil, and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears, and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, but those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I want to tell you about a guy named David. He was one of the kings of Israel, the second king of Israel. And David was anointed as king before the previous king stopped being king. How do you normally stop being king? Usually you die. It's it's not something you usually give up. It's usually something that you, you, uh, you give up through death. And so uh, David had been anointed as king because God had rejected Saul. I think I talked about that a couple weeks ago. God had rejected Saul, who was the king, uh, and said that he would be raising up a new king in Saul's place. And so God sent Samuel, who was his prophet, to go and anoint David to be king in Saul's place. The only problem was there was a period of a significant number of years where David had been anointed as a new king, and yet Saul had not yet died and was still acting as king over Israel and commanding armies and things like that. And David had a somewhat tenuous relationship with Saul. He at times served in Saul's household and was a trusted servant, was a trusted soldier, was a trusted companion. But as time grew on, David and Saul's relationship became more and more strained to the point where it was dangerous for David to remain in Saul's household. 
Saul actually tried to pin David to the wall with a spear once. That's, that's the kind of danger we're talking about. And so David was on the run. He was running away from Saul, running in fear of his life. And there are lots of episodes that we read about, about these, uh, these things that happened while he was running from Saul. And so one day, David had been uh, running, and he decided he was going to run to a town called Gath. Now, Gath was a Philistine town, and if you know anything about the Philistines, the Israelites and the Philistines were usually at war with each other. This was not uh, the, the people you would normally go and take refuge in. And we don't know exactly why David decided to go there. Maybe he was uh, going to pledge himself as a mercenary soldier uh, to this king in, in Gath. But for whatever reason, he went to Gath and he went to the king. But something happened. David had become famous enough that the king's servants recognized him. And when David figured that out, he got kind of scared. So what would you do if you were in that position? If you were in a foreign king's household, an enemy king's household, he realized who you were, he, your life might be in danger, what would you do in that situation? Pray for mercy, that's a good one. Here's what David did. He acted like a crazy person. So he, he started talking nonsense. He started making marks on the, the doors of the king's gates. He started letting his spit run down his beard. He acted like a crazy person. And the king got fed up with him and sent him away. Now, why are we talking about David and Saul? That's not one of the readings we read today. Well, if you've ever read through the book of Psalms in your Bible, you'll know that most of the Psalms, actually all of the Psalms, have a title that comes before the first verse. And the title of today's psalm, Psalm 34, lets us know that that episode, David acting like a crazy person, was what was in mind when David wrote Psalm 34. That's the context of this psalm. And commentators often divide this psalm into two main halves. Today we're going to treat it in three parts. Um, And the, the first part and the last part are parts that are not in your bulletin. We didn't read those out loud today but I'll make reference to them as we go along. So the first part is a part about testimony. The second part is invitation. And the third part is a warning. So we have testimony, invitation, and warning. And this first part, the the verses 1 through 7, the testimony part, are characterized by praise. The very first verse here starts out saying, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. And then a little bit later in verse 3, it says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. So these first verses are characterized by praise. Now, what is praise all about? Well, first of all, praise is a way of saying thank you to God. We all know the story of the, the ten lepers who Jesus healed And only one of them turned around to give thanks to Jesus, turned around to say thank you. And Jesus commends him for turning back and saying thank you. When God does things in our lives, we need to thank him. And that's part of what praise is all about. It's turning back to God in praise and thanking him for what he's done, recognizing the ways that he has worked in our lives. But another aspect of praise is testimony. Did you ever think about testimony as praise? Testimony is praise because we're praising God before others and telling others about what has done, what God has done. And that's what we mean when we talk about magnifying the Lord. 
Normally when you think about magnifying, you think about a, a magnifying glass that you might hold up in front of your face and you, you make a bug look bigger or make letters on a page look bigger. Is there a way that we can make God bigger? No, we can't make God bigger than he already is. He's infinite. But when we magnify the Lord, what we're doing is we're telling about God and what he's done to other people. So that God, not that he becomes bigger, but he becomes bigger in their eyes. They start to see who God is and what God can do. That God is real and that, that he has an impact in their lives. So praise is a way of saying thank you, but it's also something we do through testimony as we share with others what God has done in our lives. And so I want to ask you, what has the Lord done in your life? What is your testimony? How can you magnify the Lord before others with the things that God has done in your life? And it's important to be reflective about this. Our ability to bear witness as Christians is dependent upon having a life that's been changed by God. And our life isn't changed by God unless we are deeply and intimately involved in God. God is always working in our lives. He's always doing amazing things for us. But we need to be in his word. We need to be praying so that we can hear and recognize when he does those things for us. We need to have a deep relationship with God. And it's out of that relationship with God that we can see the things he does for us. And it's out of those things that he's done for us that we can bear witness to others about what he's done. That we can magnify the Lord. But your story doesn't have to be dramatic to be used by God. This is a mistake we sometimes make. It just needs to be the honest truth of what God has done for you. I remember when I first came uh, into a, a mature Christian faith, I was looking around at, at other people as I was hearing their testimonies of what God had done for them, how God had saved them. You know, I, I heard testimonies of people who were drug addicts, but God had saved them and they, they were clean now. Or people who were criminals and they had gone to prison, but they repented and God saved them. And now, now they're, they're off of the streets, off of, out of prison, and they're, they're living productive lives. And I looked at those people and I said, wow, I've, I've never been a drug addict. I've never been an alcoholic. I've never gone to prison. So my testimony must be worthless. Because, you know, you have to have a dramatic story to be able to share with other people so that they can be impressed by what God has done. And that's, there's nothing further from the truth. Because God changes lives. And he had changed my life. And the ways that he had changed my life might not have been as dramatic as the, the prisoner or as the drug addict, but God had healed me of all kinds of things, of anger, of lust, of other things in my life. He had made me a different person in him. And that's all you need to share. It doesn't have to be big or flashy. It just has to be the truth of what God has done for you. When you bear witness, your testimony can be about how God saved you in that big sense, how you came to be in Christ in the first place, or it can be about the smaller things that he's done for you along the way, the way he's provided for you, the way he's watched over you, the way he's cared for you or protected you, the way he saved you when your car blew out on the highway, the way he protected you in that car accident, the way he provided for you when you weren't quite sure how you were going to pay your electric bill. These are also ways that God cares for us and watches over us. And these two are things that we need to give God thanks for and that we need to tell others about, bear testimony, bear witness to. 
because these are the stories, real stories, of what God does each and every day in real life. God changes lives. He's changed my life, and I sure hope he's changed yours as well. And so we need to recognize the ways he's changed our lives and give him thanks and tell others about it. And so in this psalm, David is doing that. He's praising God, and he's giving testimony about God, how God had saved him, particularly through God's provision and God's deliverance. Provision comes in the story just before this, also in chapter 1 of 1 Samuel, where David and his soldiers were running out of food, and they were desperate, and they stopped by the tabernacle where the high priest was, and they said, if you can help us, we just need some food. And the the priest said, well, I don't have any normal bread. I just have the bread of the presence, the holy bread that's been consecrated and set before the Lord. And David said, well, my men and I, we have kept ourselves holy and we are are not unclean. Please give us this bread. And so the high priest shares that with him. And then he says, oh, by the way, I also, I I don't have a sword. Do you you have any any swords or any weapons? And and the high priest says, well, the, the only sword I have is is the sword that Goliath had when you slew him. And we still have that here in the, in the tabernacle. And David says, well, there's no sword like that. Give me that. And so God equipped David and his men, not just with food, but also with weapons for their journey. So God is a God who provides, and David's bearing witness to that. And God is also a God who saves, who delivers, as we saw in the story about David before the king of Gath. God provides and God delivers. And that's what this psalm is all about. It's David's testimony, his praise to God for what God had done. So as you share with others about what God has done in your life, what do you do next? I heard a great sermon last weekend when we were visiting my parents in Massachusetts uh, from a, a priest up there at an Anglican church. And he was talking about evangelism, and he was talking about uh, being harvesters. And he gave the example of blueberry bushes. He had just gone blueberry picking. And he said, when you go blueberry picking, it's really clear which are the blueberries you want to pick and put in your bucket, and which are the ones that you want to either throw on the ground or leave on the bush. Some berries are just not ripe yet. They're not ready. And some berries have already rotten, and they're, they're falling off, and you don't want to stick them in your basket because they'll just rot the rest of your fruit. But other berries are ripe, and they're ready to be picked. And that's the case with evangelism. Jesus talks about evangelists being laborers for the harvest. He says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Go, therefore, into the harvest and pray for more laborers in the harvest. When we evangelize, we're harvesting what God has prepared. And not everyone is ready to be harvested. Not everyone is ready to receive the word of your testimony. And so you can share your testimony freely. You can share the things that God has done freely. Sometimes you'll find an enthusiastic response to that. And people will want to know more. And other times, you'll get a really flat response. And you can know that that person's not ready yet. You can pray for them. You can commend them to God. And you can know that that time hasn't come yet. And you can be ready with your witness, with your testimony, to share with them if you get another opportunity some other time. But what do we do with the people who are enthusiastic? the people who are ready to hear more. That's what the next section of this psalm is all about. And this is the portion you have written in your your bulletins today. The first verse there, verse 8, says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. 
For the person who has listened favorably to that testimony, who wants to know more, the next step is an invitation. An invitation to experience God for themselves. One of the places my family likes to shop is Costco. Costco is a great place for us because they sell things in large quantities for cheap prices. And that's what we need as a a family with eight mouths to feed, is large quantities at cheap prices. And so we love going to Costco. We go there about once a month. We were actually just there two nights ago. Um, And so we, we love Costco for that reason. But there's another reason we like to shop at Costco, and that's the samples. Anytime we get close to Costco, our kids start asking, can we have samples today? And if you've ever shopped at Costco, you know that if you go anywhere close to lunchtime or dinnertime, they have an abundance of samples. You have so many samples available to you that sometimes I've gone in at lunchtime and I've eaten my lunch just from the samples. I didn't need any more food because they filled me up that way. Samples are great. I love them. They're empty calories. They're, 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 they're forgiven calories. They don't count as calories because they were given to you as a sample. It's like when you finish your kid's dessert. No calories there. So anyway, you go to Costco, you're walking around, you get all these samples. Now imagine if Costco employed people to stand at the corners of all the aisles and say, hey, there's some great chips in aisle two. You should try them. Go buy some. Or, hey, there's, there's excellent chocolate chips in aisle six. They make great cookies. You could make cookies with them. Would that be as effective as giving you a chocolate chip cookie or as giving you some chips with some salsa on it? No. No, what's the difference? The difference is is one is just a mere testimony and the other is an experience. Testimonies are good and they're important. But it can't end with a testimony because the person needs to experience God for themselves. And so we can tell people about what God has done in our lives until we're blue in the face, but until they experience God for themselves, they won't be ready to accept God into their lives. So this is the next phase. When that person is receptive, when they're eager to hear more about your testimony, you can invite them to taste and see that the Lord is good. Invite them to try God on and experience God for themselves. This expresses to the hearer that the testimony of of David, the psalmist, is not just his experience, but it's an experience of something that's generally true for all. You've all probably heard people today talking about, well, that's, that's a fine thing for you. You can believe that truth, and I'll believe my truth. And we can just be peaceful about that. And that's true. You can be peaceful. You can accept whatever someone has, has said as their truth. You can accept them. You can't accept their truth, necessarily, because some things are just black or white, true or false. Right? Some things are just black and white, true or false. And I can tell you what I think is true, black and white, true, You might have a different opinion, but only one of those things is going to be true. God is true, with a capital T. God is truth. And truth, real truth, is not found anywhere apart from him. And so for people to understand that truth is not just my experience, but is something generally true for everyone, something that's truth with a capital T, they need to have an opportunity to experience that for themselves. And so David does this in this psalm. We can see in verse 10, he says, The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. He's already told his testimony of God's provision, but now he's saying that God can provide for you as well. 
It's not just David's experience. It's something that you have access to as well if you seek the Lord. The young lions would be the the ultimate of self-sufficient, right? When you go out to the place where the lions live, there is no one on top of the lions on the food chain. Even people are not on top of the lions on the food chain. Well, maybe if you have a rifle. You might get the lion that way. But otherwise, if it's just you and a a lion, lion's going to win most likely. So lions, on their own strength, generally have plenty of food to eat. But even young lions, even the strongest of lions, will sometimes experience famine. Even young lions will sometimes find themselves starving and hungry. And David is saying, when you are in your self-sufficiency, when you're trying to do it on your own, in that mode, sometimes you'll win and sometimes you'll lose. Because even young lions suffer lack and hunger. But those who seek the Lord, those who put their trust in the Lord, lack no good thing. It was true for David, and he's saying it's true for you too, if you'll taste and see that the Lord is good. And we'll talk more about deliverance in the next section. But in witnessing, this is where we can show people that the things that we have experienced in our walk can also be found in the scriptures as well. Because my word is just my word if I can't back it up with something bigger than myself. One commentator on this passage says that one person's testimony is only valuable to others if it rests on the changeless truth of God. I'll read that again. One person's testimony is only valuable to others if it rests on the changeless truth about God. And the truth about that is that I can tell you what I've experienced of God, but unless you've experienced it for yourself, or unless you have an authority beyond me to tell you that it's, it's bigger than just Chris Klukas, that it's a, it's a thing, it's like something everybody can experience, then it's worthless, because then it's just my experience. But if you can see from an authority greater than me that the, what I've experienced is true for everybody, that piques your curiosity and wants you, it makes you want to know more. And so David doesn't just let the hearer know that it's available. He invites the hearer to experience these blessings for him or herself. To experience God for him or herself. There was a a ministry, it's still in Pittsburgh actually, called the Pittsburgh Experiment. But it was started many years ago by a man named uh, Sam Shoemaker, who was an Episcopal priest in Pittsburgh at the time. He's also one of the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous. But with the Pittsburgh experiment, it started as a ministry to business leaders. Sam Shoemaker was meeting with business leaders, and many of them didn't really have an experience of God. They weren't even sure if God really existed or or if, if God was true, what the Bible said was true. But he would meet with these people, and he invited them to gather in groups, small groups of two or three, and to try praying. He invited them to share with each other what was going on in their lives, to pray for each other for 30 days, and then come back and meet together and see. See what had happened over the last month. And over and over and over again, people experienced changed lives. Marriages got healed. Struggles at work got fixed. Relationships with children were healed. Remarkable things were happening from people who weren't even sure that God existed just because they tried praying. You've all heard people pray prayers like that. God, if you're up there, 
not sure if you exist or not, but would you please help me? And God loves to hear those prayers because it's a step towards faith. To even acknowledge that God might exist is a step towards faith. And God is faithful to answer those prayers. He delights to hear people turning their hearts to him, even if it's just a little eensy-weensy bit. And so when we invite people to taste and see that God is good, we're inviting them to experience God for themselves. Beyond this, God is also inviting them into discipleship. And so once they've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, they need to take a next step in him. It says in verse 11, Come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Come, my children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. We need people to walk before us and teach us the ways of the Lord. Teach us how to follow God. And so if someone has come to a place where they've heard your testimony and were interested, where they've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, they need to be invited into discipleship, to walk with the Lord. And you can teach them the ways of the Lord. You can teach them to follow God. Jesus tells us about this in his Great Commission. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. That discipleship is an important piece of that because it's not enough just to acknowledge that God is true or to accept Jesus in some minimal sense. Jesus is inviting us into a life of discipleship, a life of walking with him. And so people won't know what the next step is, what the next step to take is, unless someone tells them about it. And you can tell them about it. If they've accepted the truth of God, if they've tasted and seen that he's good, you can invite them to take the next steps. Invite them to accept Jesus into their lives as their Lord and Savior. Invite them to be baptized and to be welcomed into the fellowship of the church. You get to have the privilege of doing that if you've walked with them through those first two steps. And it's an honor to do so. But we also have to remember that every invitation that's accepted opens us up to more invitations from God to experience him even more deeply. And that continues to be true for the rest of your life as Christians. Even now, if you ask him, God has more for you. God has more of himself that he wants you to experience. God wants to draw you deeper into the depths of himself. He wants to show you more of his glory and more of who he is. And so if you ask God, he'll show you what those things are. He'll show you the ways that he wants to draw you closer to himself. And as we draw closer to God, we can share that with others and draw them along with us. So first of all, we had testimony, then we have invitation. Finally, we have warning, which is actually a, a continuation of invitation in some ways, uh, but it's, it's also a warning. And in this third section, we have a contrast between the righteous and the wicked. The contrast between the righteous and the wicked. As I said, this is in some ways a continuation of the second part because it's speaking of the way that God delivers the righteous from their afflictions. But in doing this, he also contrasts the way that the wicked are not delivered. And that deliverance uh, is something only the righteous experience, the wicked will instead be cut off. And so we see in verse 16, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Or again in verse 21, he says, Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. 
there is a warning in store for the wicked, for those who choose to walk apart from God, to do it on their own strength, to be like those young lions. We don't want to be like those young lions. We don't want to be the self-sufficient ones. We don't want to be the wicked ones because those are the ones who are cut off from God of their own choosing. We want to be the righteous ones. And the promise for the righteous one is deliverance. David says, The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. That's the promise God holds out to the righteous. Now, the thing about this is different people need to hear different things. It doesn't mean the truth of the gospel changes in the least. It's still the same gospel, but different people need to hear different parts of the gospel as their entry point. And some people need to be encouraged. They need to be encouraged and invited to taste and see. Other people need a bit of a kick in the pants. They need to be encouraged in a negative sense to know what they're facing if they don't turn to the Lord, if they continue to be numbered among the wicked. You've probably met some people like that. (laughs) Need a little bit of a kick in the pants to get going in the right way. How do you know the difference between the one who needs to be encouraged and the one who needs the kick in the pants? It's a matter of discernment. And God will show that to you if you pray and ask him. What does this person need as I'm sharing about you with them? What do they need to hear about who you are and what you've done for them? And God will reveal that to you. He'll make it clear to you. One important thing, though, about the righteous. Following God is not a promise that you will experience no more afflictions in your life. In fact, the evidence of Scripture would suggest that the opposite is true. If you follow Christ, you can be sure that you will experience afflictions. Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. But then he goes on to say, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Afflictions are real, and they will be there whether you're part of the righteous or part of the wicked. The difference is in what God will do with you as you experience those afflictions. In the second letter to the Corinthians, Paul is talking about this a little bit. And he's talking about the afflictions that he himself has been suffering And he's encouraging the Corinthian believers not to be discouraged by his sufferings. He says in verse 8 of chapter 1, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. That's a pretty severe affliction, isn't it? If it gets so bad that you say, God, please take me because this is so hard, I'd I'd rather just go and be with you. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, Paul says. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That's where the strength and the power comes from. We will experience afflictions. We will have trials and troubles in this life. But the promise of the scriptures is that God will help us through it. In Paul's case, the affliction was to teach him to rely not on himself, but on the Lord. And that's a lesson I think many of us could take to heart more often. We need to rely on the Lord for his strength, not relying on our own strength to get us through. But the promise of this psalm, Psalm 34, is that God will deliver us when we experience afflictions.
One commentator says the onset of trouble must be matched by the onset of prayer. And the prayer of the righteous summons the God of deliverance to our aid. That's true for all of us. That's been true in my life. I'm sure it's been true in many of your lives. And we can hear very dramatic stories about this from some of the missionaries who have gone to places like China and deep into Muslim countries. When they get to those places of utter despair and they call on the Lord, the Lord does remarkable things in them and through them, changing circumstances significantly. When we experience affliction, we can take comfort in verse 18, where it says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. If you've ever been in those places, those dark places, those broken-hearted places of despair, you can take comfort knowing that God is never far from you. In fact, he's always right there next to you, right near to you. And that you can lean on him, and he will help you get through it. It doesn't guarantee what the outcome will be, but it does guarantee that God will help you get through it, whatever it is. God is always with us. And we can always trust in his power to save. And when he does, we can start the cycle all over again. Praising and magnifying God for what he has done and inviting others to taste and see that the Lord is good. That is our witness. That is our testimony as Christians. That is the privilege we have in this world. Is to take those afflictions and those experiences of God's salvation and turn them to praise to God, thanking him for what he's done, and bearing that testimony to others so that they can be invited to experience God as well. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for all of the ways that you watch over us each and every day, for all of the ways that you provide for us, the ways that you heal us, and the ways that you save us from our afflictions. We pray, Lord, that you would have us, help us to see the ways that you've been working in our lives. Help us to see all of the ways that you care for us and watch over us. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to turn and give you thanks for those things, but that you would also help us to see those who need to hear about those things, and that you give us opportunities to share our testimonies of what you've done in us and through us. Make us effective witnesses of your gospel and help us to invite others to taste and see that you are good. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a production of Good Samaritan Anglican Church in Middleburg, Florida. For more sermons, sermon notes, and information about our congregation, please visit www.goodsamaritananglican.org slash sermons. If this podcast has been helpful to you, Please subscribe and leave us a review with your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening. God bless you.